Thank you. Well, I, again, I'm sorry it's so hot in here. <laughs> so hopefully we could stay focused. I'll try to talk loud and fast over the phone or over the, I was just talking about phones, over the fan. <laughs> okay. Um, so yes, like Kelly said, um, I'm a consultant and trainer. I used to teach at North Central University and hung out with Dave Pafford and Ryan Leak and the guys who were doing worship and everything. So it's really cool. I live in North Carolina now, but it's cool to be able to come here and kind of uh, interact with great people in Ohio. So um, today I'm gonna talk in this session about building a great team, the kind people don't wanna lead. Uh, one of the reasons that I'm really passionate about this topic is that my area kind of, of research and study is millennials which are 20 to 35 year olds, okay? So um, this is what I've been studying for the last 10 years of my life. I have a book, Millennials in Ministry, and um, I'm passionate about young leaders. But what my research reveals and research out there reveals is that often what young people are looking for when they join a team and what maybe older people want when they join a team can be very different things. So often when you get into the workplace and the ministry context and you have a team and you have all these different expectations and needs on the team, it can be really, really messy. So that's kind of my heart and passion behind this topic. Um, I led lots of teams of millennials over the course of my life and now I work on lots of teams with boomers and Xers. So kind of today is going to be a conglomeration of what are some best practices when we're looking at leading a team regardless of what the context is. Some of this stuff is going to be very common sense, stuff you already know, but I'm just going to reiterate it because as leaders it's good for us to be reminded of the things that work and that we're doing that are working or things that maybe we did but we forgot that we should be doing more of, okay? And then there's going to be just some different tools or strategies to kind of use when you're thinking about building a team. Uh, I grew up, like I said, on the mission field. My dad has been a missionary and pastor for over 30 years. And growing up, he always had this quote, everything reflects leadership, okay? So I love that because I watched him live it. When a team was falling apart, he's like, what am I doing wrong? When a program wasn't working, he's like, what am I doing wrong? When somebody on his staff like, made a bad decision, he's like, how did I fail to empower them or coach them or mentor them? Okay? He always went back to himself. And when we think about leading a team, um, it really all goes back to leadership. <laughs> okay? A really great team doesn't usually function effectively without a great leader or people in leadership. So one thing um, that has changed, uh, uh, my senior pastor is about 65. He's been in ministry for most of his life, and we talk about these things all the time. And he said to me the other day, he's like, everything I learned about leadership in seminary 30 years ago, I have to do the opposite of. I was like, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, so often we had, um, you know, Leadership traits, strategies, styles that work in one period with one group of people are not the same things that work in another period with another group of people, right? But one thing that we're finding today as we're leading teams, that the soft skills are the most critical aspect of leadership. And what do I mean when I say soft skills? I mean relational skills, okay? What relating to people, understanding people, emotional intelligence. And so often as leaders, we've been taught to be very competent in things like time management or strategic planning and these types of things, program development. But we have to refocus and remember nowadays, the most important things we can have as a leader are soft skills and to be intentional in developing them in ourselves. So when we talk about um, people's expectations when they come on specifically to ministry teams, uh, but these often carry over into the workplace as well, is that uh, kind of traditional 
uh, leadership measurements um, or traits are not what younger people are always looking for. Often, older people are looking for the same thing as younger people, but um, there's kind of been a transition. So typically, when we've run ministries or um, organizations, we've uh, run them as businesses. You even think about the way we term positions within the church, executive pastor, associate pastor, reflect the business world much more than New Testament, right? Uh, we think about things like the five-star church, you know, a lot of these models of excellence in ministry, very much taking business theories, models, and applying them to the church. That's not bad. It's not bad at all. It's, it's got a lot of great things. But sometimes in that is we get caught up in the business model of doing church, and a lot of times you have young team members who are coming in, and they have gone into ministry because they want to be a part of a family. They want church to be family. They can go find businesses elsewhere, <laughs> okay? So they're coming to church as a family. And so often we're leading out of a business model, and we're using kind of business strategies, but we have to make sure we're also leading kind of in a parental way when it comes to uh, young leaders. Leaders as bosses versus leaders as friends or parents. Um, a strong focus on presentation and formality versus informality. And uh, just kind of being casual. And sometimes we translate this into wearing jeans, okay, <laughs> versus a suit in church. But it really is a much deeper thing. Often in the church, we try to have everything look just right. We want the lighting to be right, the sound to be right, our stories to be right, our, you know, our three points in our sermon to be right, and our lives to be right. And kind of what young leaders are looking for on teams and young people as they're coming onto teams, they're really looking to be, it's okay to be messy. It's okay to not just wear jeans, but to kind of let my hair down in general. And so how do we kind of engage that messiness and accept that that's okay as a leader? And one of the, the biggest things is to just be real ourselves. You know, my senior pastor, like I said, it's hard for him sometimes like because he's navigating this very intergenerational church. And so we were talking about this. And one Sunday he got up and he was preaching on something, got to a, the a theological point. He says, I don't have an answer for this. And I, I really can't figure out what the Lord meant by this. I'm wrestling with it. And like the young people just latch on to that, right? Because it's being real. So on every level of our leadership, being really real. Programs versus people. Okay, so often when we're on teams, we're so focused on the programs, we want everyone on the team to sacrifice for the sake to make, of making that program perfect. Versus saying, well, if it's sacrificing so much of our people's energy, time, willpower to make this program work, is the program worth it? That's what a lot of young people are asking. And a lot of team members in general. So making sure that we're prioritizing people, not just the programs, when we're working on things as a team. How we measure success as a team often is different. A lot of times we've measured success on ministry teams as numbers, bodies, buildings, budgets, right? And a lot of times there's team members who want to measure success as spiritual growth, personal development. Again, that focus on family and people versus numbers. So as we're leading teams, it's important to ask how are we measuring success and what does that look like? Okay. Um, Often uh, we've put ministry teams, jobs first. That's kind of been the traditional work ethic. Okay? So if this team is committed to something, we're all going to sacrifice till blood and sweat, and we're going to sleep three hours a night if we have to, and we're going to make it happen. 
And teams are beginning to acquire more and more people who are like, I have other priorities in my life too. I'm not going to sacrifice all for the team. And a lot of times what happens is team members who kind of have this life first versus ministry first approach get accused of being uncommitted, irresponsible, not dedicated. But as team leaders, it's really important for us to remember we kind of are managing teams nowadays with some competing sets of values, okay? A lot of younger leaders have watched ministry leaders burn out because they put ministry first and they've said, I'm not doing that. I'm putting life first and ministry is going to flow out of my life. And so, um, but that can create a lot of conflict. So this kind of just gives us a perspective of some of the dynamics that are happening on team as we're looking at um, some cultural transition occurring right now, which I'll talk about in my workshops later this afternoon in more depth. But I kind of just wanted to throw that up. Um, so going back to the point that it's all about leadership. To build a functional team, you have to be functional, <laughs> okay? Uh, I think this is the most important thing about building a team. You don't have to be perfect. It's actually good sometimes if you're not perfect. Uh, but you have to be functional. It's very, very hard for a dysfunctional person to run a functional team. And so I want to take just 10 minutes or so and talk about this. Because as leaders, we often are focusing on what we're doing not who we're being. And so I'm just hoping that this can be a, a blessing to someone to just, re, re, these are all things that we know, but just a reminder, am I focusing on who I'm being as a leader? And am I being a functional leader right now? Because we always need to be checking on that. Um, so a couple of things. I, I want to talk a little bit about emotional intelligence. So if you're familiar with emotional intelligence, just draw me out for a minute. But it's a good reminder to think about who am I as a person? What, what, on that chart that I just showed you, which side do you identify with most closely? Are you a ministry as business? Are you a ministry as a family? Are you measure success by numbers? Are you measure success by those intangible developments? Are you a life first or a ministry or work first type of person? Who are you? Because remembering that, what perspective you're functioning out of, is going to help you as you navigate with your team members, right? So really being aware of ourselves. And of course, you know, there's all kinds of assessments and things that can help us do that, but being aware of, that, of ourselves. And then really managing ourselves, <laughs> okay? So in what ways, where, think about the teams that you're leading right now, okay? So where, where are you having to manage because parts of things, values, personalities, that are different than yours are conf conflicting with you, and how are you responding to that? I, I'm working, I'm consulting with an organization right now, and the top leader, she's just, she wears her emotions on her sleeve, you know? And all the assessments that I'm doing with the organization is making that very, very apparent. She just wears her emotions on her sleeve. And, I, and so we're working on this because I'm like, you have to self-manage, <laughs> okay? If she's angry, the, the staff doesn't know if she's gonna come in, she's angry, or she's happy. And depending, they have no idea because the same thing can happen and it can have a dynamic result one day and the next day it can be a peaceful result, okay? So what are the things, when, we, when you're asking your team for feedback, what are the things that they're saying and then how are you managing those things? And then what is your social awareness? If I were to ask you right now, how is everyone on your team doing, could you tell me? Could you tell me who's engaged, who's disengaged, who's having a good week, who's having a bad week? 
What are they liking about the team and the mission? What are they disliking about the team and the mission? Who's having conflict? Who's getting along? Where are the social cliques developing on your team? Okay, so again, just being constantly socially aware of what's going on and then managing those relationships, right? And so we have to, we have to be aware of ourselves. We have to be aware of the social context. And then not just aware of them, but we have to manage them. We have to manage ourselves, and we have to then manage the social context. So um, when I worked at North Central for a while, I was on a team of all men. So my boss was a male, my colleagues were males, and I had a staff that I supervised that was all males, okay? <laughs> so, um, and I'm not a big believer that women are more emotional than men, because believe me, they cried a lot more than I did, okay? <laughs> but I can remember this one day where one of them did something, one of my colleagues, my peers, did something that caused, I had five student leaders, females, in the bathroom sobbing, okay? And he did something that just was insensitive, okay? I was so angry. I was just, ang I mean, I just wanted to just punch, punch him in the face, you know? So I, I just go to my office, okay? I, I walked in, comforted the girls, talked them through it, blah, blah, blah. Then I walked to my office, walked right by and walked to the office. I'm in there just pacing, pacing my office. And he comes and knocks. He's like, can I come in? Because he knew I was mad. You know? I'm like, okay, you can come in. Sit down. I just kept walking. He's like, you know, he's like, are you going to talk to me about this? I'm like, hmm. I said, right now there's incredible emotion flooding my body, causing me to want to do things that are not really going to be productive right now. So right now <laughs> what I'm trying to do is process all those emotions and put them into a really logical explanation to you as to why I feel this way, because that's the only way you're going to hear it from me. So just pause for a moment, okay? <laughs> um, but we have to sometimes as leaders realize wh what is going on. Constantly being aware, what is going on with me and then how do I manage that so that I can relate to the relationships around me effectively? There's another instance where, you know, guys, it's kind of, you know, it's often about who's on the top of the dog pile, you know? Who's, who's at the top of the hierarchy? So I had this team of five 25, 22 to 25-year-old guys, okay? Everybody trying to establish dominance on the team. So there had, there had emerged two camps within my team. Okay, a leader in each camp that was both vying for me to give them resources and you know attention and influence and all these things. So after about a month of this going on, hoping it would work itself out, I finally was like, this is ridiculous. So relationship management. I took them both to a coffee shop, sat one down on each side of a table and said, we're not getting up from this table and tell your friends. So we can sit here as long as you want. Let's work this out. Okay, about two and a half hours later, they were friends. So. We have to, though, be aware because what happens in those situations is if the leader's not aware that we've now just have two camps established and that there's two leaders, you're never going to accomplish anything. And so often leaders just are disengaged and keep coming in and saying the same things and they're not managing their team. Does that make sense? So this emotional intelligence piece is so important in so many ways because me being aware of my emotions and that relationship with my colleague probably guarded that relationship. I was able to engage in that really dysfunctional situation in a healthy manner, okay? Um, and I won't tell you all the stories of when I failed. I'll just tell you a couple where I succeeded, okay? But we just gotta be aware of these things as we're leading. Here's, here's something else I just wanna reiterate. The emperor's clothes, we all know this fable, right? Where the emperor's walking around naked, but nobody says anything to the emperor because you know the emperor thinks that he has this beautiful robe on until a little child says, um, why is the emperor naked? Leaders were all emperors. 
okay? Everyone sees our nakedness, okay? <laughs> Everyone knows our flaws and failings. So are we establishing ways of getting that feedback from them? Because this is a Jahari, um, a Jahari window, if you've ever seen it. But kind of, I love it because it just demonstrates kind of the life of a leader, okay? And box one is what you know and what everybody else knows, okay? That's out in the open. These are things that we all know. Everybody celebrates. These are your strengths as a leader, and we all love them. Then you have the things that are unknown to other people, but you know them, okay? We just don't show them to people, okay? So we, we know these things about us, but shh don't tell anybody else. That, 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 that's a perfect, you know, when we talk about the formality and the presentation in church, okay, that part of the leadership. Then we have the parts that are our blind spots, that are the things that everybody else knows about us, that we're walking around naked, okay, but we don't see. And we all have those blind spots. And as a leader, our goal is to make the, the box in the first box a little bit bigger, to be really honest and authentic. Obviously, we don't always hang out our dirty laundry, but being honest, honest and authentic in our leadership and also being more and more self-aware. And as a leader, the best people to give us good feedback about our blind spots, other than our spouse and our kids, <laughs> is who? Our team. The people who have to put up with us every day. Our actions and our behaviors. So my question to us is, what, in what ways are you getting that feedback from them on a consistent basis? How? We have to have systems and strategies in place where we're getting that feedback on a, a regular basis. Whether that's occasionally really formal ways, like a 360 degree review, you know, where we're um, asking for anonymous feedback and getting feedback from people, or if it's in conversations where we're honestly uh, accepting feedback. And then when we're asking for feedback, the next step is how we respond to that feedback. So as we're seeking to become more self-aware and eliminate that blind spot, we have to be asking for feedback and then we have to be thanking people for that feedback and not responding to it defensively or with explanations, just receiving it, okay? And taking it into consideration, weighing it with other people who are mentors and coaches. And sometimes it's really small things we could do. Like type out the agenda versus having it in your head. You know, something very small. And sometimes it's pretty major things that are causing dysfunction on our team. Okay, so some questions that we need to have as team leaders is, have you received constructive feedback from members on your team recently? What is it? How are you seeking to grow in those things? How do you determine areas for personal growth? What are concerns, challenges, and passions of your team members right now? How are you being self-aware? How are you managing yourself? How are you being aware of your team and how are you managing them, okay? And really, if we could get that piece right, a lot of the other team issues that, um, that exist go away. I've talked to so many people, we all know this. You, you don't mind doing things that are not in your skill set or maybe not your passion if you have someone that you're following that just believes in you and you believe in them, right? So how can we be that type of leader? That is the best way to build a team. Be the type of person and leader that people want to follow. Okay, I just wanted to throw that in there because often we just get caught up in focusing on what to do for the team, okay, versus what to do for us. So now let's talk about what we do for the team. So here are some of the things that can affect how you manage a team, how you build a really healthy team. The team size, okay, best size of a team is three to nine possibly 12, okay? But once you get a team much bigger than that, you almost wanna break it down into sub-teams because it becomes really hard 
to develop a great team dynamic when you get over 12. Uh, just the different forms of diversity, whether that's age, denomination, ethnicity, socioeconomic class, gender, etc. Okay, like I said, when I was working with all guys, I had to change some of the ways that I did stuff, right? When you're working on intergenerational teams, which is kind of what I specialize, you have to focus on different things. And each, of the, each form of diversity adds a little bit different nuance to how you're going to manage that team. The purpose of the team, group personalities, and the culture of the group, okay? And that's, uh, um, if we don't know the personalities, we don't establish a culture, it's going to be really hard to build a healthy team. And then team leader style and influence, which I already talked about, which I believe is really the most important. <coughs> oh, yeah. And you can, again, if you want to download the notes, you can. But I know some of you like to write them down. Okay. Um, okay. Here's something i just like to walk through. Uh, many of us are familiar with this, but it's a good reminder. Teams don't just form overnight, right? <laughs> you don't suddenly just say, we've hired all of you. We now have a healthy team. Let's, you know, let's move on. Um, teams form when you bring people together. So you form a committee or you hire people to a team or whatever it is, you recruit volunteers, and now you've formed your team. These are the people that are on your team, however you go ahead and do that. And for a while in the forming stage, it's usually a little bit of a honeymoon stage where we're excited, everyone's happy to be here because, hey, this, we're doing something new, we're working together, this is, you know, we have a common purpose, blah, blah, blah. Forming stage is really exciting. Storming usually comes next, okay? They don't always follow these stages, but usually after a forming stage, a team goes through a storming stage. This is normal. <laughs> this is necessary, and it's healthy. And if a team does not go through a storming stage well, it can be the end of the functionality of that team. But if a team goes through a storming stage well, it makes that team stronger and more effective for the long run. But a storming stage usually requires the management piece, okay? Someone who's gonna say, I mean, the storming was when I had two camps that developed, okay? Because we had been working together for about six months and then people decided that they wanted to be the one in charge. And so that was a storming stage. So if the storming stage is not managed by the leader, it can become very dysfunctional and side rail the team. But if we can use that to come together and figure out where are our differences, where are our conflicts, how do we come together, then it can help us reach a norming stage, okay? A norming stage is where now we're starting to get comfortable with our roles, with our responsibilities, with our place on the team, what is my, you know, what is my place in connection with everybody else, and then we can move towards high performance. And that's the goal. Often what happens is when there's changes in the team, a storming stage happens again. So whether that's bringing someone new on, or there's a new challenge that arises, or a new project, you have to then go through a storming stage again. But storming is good. So if you're familiar with the five dysfunctions of a team by Lencioni, he talks about this in depth. And I highly recommend that book, um, Five Dysfunctions of a Team. There's also a field leader, uh, a leader's field guide, which I also highly recommend if you are building a team because it literally will walk you through exercises and things to do with your team at each of these stages, okay? So, um, but he talks about what it takes to create a functional team. The first thing he talks about uh, that is a dysfunction, so these are the dysfunctions that derail a team. The first dysfunction is an absence of trust. This is where people do not trust each other. And if there's not trust, you cannot move forward. 
And this is why a functional leader is so important. Because if you have a leader who wears their emotions on their sleeve and one minute is exploding at you and the next minute is congratulating you, it's very hard to trust that person. Even if you trust their heart, you don't trust their responses. So this is why functional leaders that, that people can trust then help facilitate the trust on the team as a whole. So we're looking to create trust on our team. What does a leader do in creating trust? Go first, <laughs> okay? And one of the big ways of creating trust is being vulnerable and being authentic. So sh when you fail or you make a mistake, saying, I made a mistake, I failed. Being open to feedback, people giving you feedback and showing that, okay, I need to help making a change in this way, or I need you to help me because it's not my area of strength. So being open to feedback, being honest with people, and creating a place that's safe where people kind of know what to expect and it's predictable. You can tell you don't have trust when there's invulnerability. When you say, does anyone have any input? What do you guys think about this idea? Okay, that's often a sign of distrust because people don't feel safe to verbalize what they're thinking or their ideas. The other thing that's a sign of distrust or dysfunction is what I call the after meetings, right? Where you have a team meeting and then interestingly, people are standing in the parking lot for like two hours after the meeting <laughs> having the post meeting saying all the things in the post meeting that they felt they couldn't say in the real meeting, right? So as a leader, here's a cue. If you have silence or you have after meetings, then we maybe need to work on this, okay? That's, that's a good cue that we need some relation, relationship management and social management of the group. Fear of conflict. If there is a fear of conflict, you also get silence and after meetings, right? Because when someone disagrees with something, they don't feel safe to verbalize it in the group, and then they're going out and talking and venting to their friends afterwards instead of having a healthy discussion and dialogue in the context of the group. So as a leader, again, it's that storming process. And if you don't like conflict and you're conflict adverse, just embrace it, okay? Because without healthy conflict, teams cannot be effective and grow. There has to be healthy conflict. And we have to model that for the people on our team, that it's okay to have some disagreement and do it in a respectful, loving manner. Um, so as a leader, we need to mine for some of the conflict. That sounds bad, right? Who wants to go looking for conflict? But if you see someone in your team is disengaging or checking out or not giving input, then maybe pulling them aside and asking them how they're feeling. What, well, so-and-so isn't letting me, you know? Then you start to hear, where's the conflict? Or where, or I don't agree, well, okay, well then let's have a discussion about this. So start to kind of figure out what, if there's a lack of healthy conflict and there's not um, vulnerability and conversation happening, then we need to address that and allow that storming process to occur. Um, lack of commitment is another dysfunction when a team is not working well. Um, and this is usually um, a lack of focus or clarity on what we're t accomplishing. Um, I was actually working with a team last week that <laughs> the entire team has just checked out. They've stopped caring. And what I realized is happening as we talked about it is that they come to meetings with ideas, all these ideas get put on the table, then they walk away, none of, nothing happens with any of the ideas. They just sit there. So now they're like, I'm done. I'm not giving ideas, I'm not committed to this anymore. And what's happening is the leader's not forcing clarity. OK, 
okay? The leader's not saying, okay, we can't do 20 ideas, so let's boil this down to the two or three that we can do. Then when we get to the two or three that we can do, okay, who's gonna take ownership for each of these ideas? Who's gonna help them, right? So the leader has to help bring that focus so that there can be commitment. Um, and then avoidance of accountability. The leader has to create a culture where it's healthy to give accountability. So in some ways, having a team where you delegate to a team to do something, but also when someone's not following through as leaders, we just don't like to confront it, right? We don't like to address it. But if the leader does not confront when someone's not following through, then the entire team starts to become demotivated. Okay, and then you get inattention to results. So again, we need to be celebrating the wins and focusing on where we're moving with those things so that people feel like we're accomplishing something as a team. Any thoughts, comments so far on anything we've talked about? I've just kind of kept moving. Okay, I'm not creating an atmosphere of trust. No, <laughs> okay, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, um, I mean, this bottom one is huge, okay? Because if, if millennials, and this is why these principles are best practices, okay? Why, this is why I love Lencioni, because he hit on some things that are best practices for every generation. Because if people trust you, it doesn't matter what age they are, they'll feel comfortable following you, okay? Now, the big thing with millennials is that they're much more driven by relationship than position, okay? Millennials choose who they're gonna follow. They don't, you don't choose them. <laughs> so they can be on your team because of position, but if they don't trust you and have a relationship with you, they're not following you. They're doing their own thing. So position is easy. You get assigned a position, you're in the position. Okay, and there's people on your team who are gonna respect you and follow you because of your position. They're likely not under the age of 40, okay? <laughs> so, those who are under the age of 40, they wanna know that you care about them, not just what you're gonna do for them, okay? So, my next workshop, Recruiting Millennials as Volunteers, speaks to this a lot more, okay? But, if you, they wanna know that they are the people over the programs, remember? People over programs. So let's say you're running a children's ministry. I work in the children's ministry at our church. And, um, you know, we have 400 kids on a weekend. And so there's a lot of volunteers. And the staff get very overwhelmed just keeping all the balls in the air. But our children's director will come into the room and hand me a toy that she found that she thought my twins would like. You know, as she's running around scrambling to get everybody organized, I'm like, oh my goodness, she cares about me. She thought about something my three-year-olds would like and remembered to bring it to church on Sunday while she's juggling 350 kids and hand it to me as she's running past my classroom, you know? So those are the kinds of things, though, that millennials gravitate to. You care about me, not just my performance, okay? Know what's going on in their life and be committed to that. Yeah? That's amazing. You know the little <coughs> slide you had up there with the chart, the first chart you yep. had? Yep, yep. It seems like there's a message as a pastor that millennials are more interested in perfection and performance than they are relationship. Now, you just said they're more interested in relationship. But when you go to a church or a church that tries to appeal to millennials, mm -hmm. everything about that presentation mm -hmm. is about got to be perfect. Mm -hmm. 
Yes. Yep. <laughs> okay. That's a great question. And my book, Millennials in Ministry, speaks to it a lot more. Okay. That, that, that first slide I showed was kind of my research that I did and that my book's based on. Okay. But um, here's the thing. Millennials are used to things being excellent because they don't, they don't, they can download their favorite song. They can listen to a podcast of their favorite speaker. So they're used to looking for and finding the best. So when they walk into a church and they see excellent music and excellent teaching, that definitely resonates with them. There's an element of that that is necessary. However, what we're seeing are a lot of these churches that are really focused on that presentation and formality and everything being perfect, but it's a transient crowd, okay? They have young people in and out, in and out, but very few are actually plugged in and being discipled and developed. So while it's attracting them, it's not necessarily then converting all the time, in some cases it is, but not all the time, to the deep spiritual growth and community and connection, which is where young adults grow. So, um, so you have a couple of different models of church kind of emerging. Some are these house churches, and what you also see is young adults are shopping so they're not becoming members of any one church. They go to the church with the fancy, flashy service for Sunday morning. Then they go to a house church on Wednesday night. And Saturday, they're at a small group from another church. I mean, I talk to young adults all the time that are doing this. Because the big, flashy church isn't providing me in the sense of community or the discipleship that I want. So young adults, are, they're navigating it, and they're, they're picking and choosing. So yes, there, there's a role for all of it, you know? Um, I don't have time to go into my personal philosophy of where I think the church will be in 20 years, but <laughs> I think that the church in 20 years, millennials are very much, they're, it's very unlikely that they're going to pay the cost of the big fancy building and flashy services. Okay, so once boomers are done paying for that and are retiring, I think we're going to see a more of a trend towards the house church model. Okay, because that costs a lot of money. And it's a lot of work, and most millennials don't want to do the work or pay the money. <laughs> so unless they change, I think that what we're seeing is a temporary trend. And I think that it's still good. It's for a season, and it's for a purpose. It's pulling millennials in. It's connecting them with God. But it's not the end all, you know, to attracting young adults. Yeah. Okay, other thoughts? Uh, can we recircle back to building trust? <laughs> so um, what happens if even like, in the workplace, you're in a position where you have positional authority and you want to begin um, creating the relationship of trust instead of using the positional authority, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. how do you go about creating that and not just turning everybody's head like, okay, you're weird, why are you doing this all of a sudden? Yes, yeah. Um, again, a big part of it is your context and what you're doing, okay? So like um, an IT department, I've seen IT departments do it where they have like video game lunch hour, <laughs> you know, because IT guys are not usually the type who want to sit around and share their feelings, you know, they want to, they want to play video games. So you kind of have to, I show this example, you kind of just have to find out what, because then in the context of hanging out over lunch, playing video games together, they start to talk about what they did that weekend and what their kids are doing and blah, 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 blah. But if you put them in a circle and stay, start sh sharing your feelings, uh, they're not going to do that. Okay. So one, one thing with trust, very, the basic beginning thing is to be someone who is just very authentic as a leader okay so showing in very basic ways that you're going to be consistent they can trust you to follow through on your word that you're going to communicate when you make mistakes i'm going to sh I, hey that was my fault i'll take the blame for that okay 
to just kind of being that trustworthy person, but then to start to integrate. So one of the things like I would do with my millennial staff is every morning before I got to my office, I would go around to every one of their offices and just pop in and say, hey, so what happened on Saturday Night Live last night? Because you know, the one who loves Saturday Night Live, asked them that thing, hey, did the kids sleep last night? Hey, did I, you know, I just pop into each of their office, ask a question, because again, then I was showing I cared about them, not, so some of it is contextual. In some cases, you just need to have communication. That's the first thing. Some teams are just so task-oriented, they're not, there's no relationship development. So it can be like taking the first part of a team meeting to like someone share their personal history. How do they get to this position in this place? And then suddenly, oh my goodness, I didn't know all that about you. Now I understand you better, right? So I can trust you now that I understand those behaviors are coming out of this experience. So sometimes it's just building things into like your staff meeting where it's just, it's literally 10 minutes. You just have someone share their personal story and every week you do that and it helps build trust. Sometimes it's doing a team building thing where you actually go somewhere and do something. I mean, my husband works for the military. His boss took them to like, you know, one of those places where they like play, you play arcade games. I'm like, what? I'm like, you guys can go out on the range and shoot real guns. <laughs> you know, I'm like, why are you going? Okay, which is what some of them do for team building too. But so you kind of have to just look at what is your team and what kinds of things will help them learn about each other. But a lot of it just starts with you demonstrating that you're someone that they can trust and you're going to be consistent and you care about them. So, yeah. Okay, great stuff. Okay, let's... um. Okay, um, here's the other thing. We talked a little bit about personalities. I'm not going to harp on this because there's so many presentations about this. But if you do not do some sort of personality assessment with a team, especially a team that's a long-term, I mean, obviously with a volunteer team, this can be really hard. But if you have a workplace team or a team that's kind of a core volunteer team, to do some sort of assessment, personality assessment, spiritual gifts assessment, anything like that, can really, really help in understanding each other but also giving terminology to why we're different and why we think differently, okay? And so I just like to use Myers-Briggs because it's a well-known one. But um, for example, I just, I'll pick on my husband for a minute, okay? He's an INTP. So I means that he's introverted. N means that he's intuitive, okay? That he sees the big picture. He's not down the nitty-gritty details. He's a T for thinker. And is, he's a P for perceiving, which means he takes the world as it comes to him. He doesn't have a plan. Now I'm a J, and so I tell, which is someone who has a plan and a task list, and we have to get it done. I wake up in the morning, so I, you know, I, frequently I tell him stop peeing all over me. <laughs> I have a plan to do. Get out of my way, okay? So this helps immensely in marriage too. You understand each other. But for my husband, he lives up in the clouds, right? He's a thinker, and he's processing the world. So I mean, he's a strategic planner for special operations. Perfect job for him, right? I mean, he's analyzing what do we need to be doing today to be prepared for warfare in 20 years. Okay, I do not want to think about that, okay? So he, like, he's doing these things. But he works for, and let's see, who, who, uh, where was it? I just found ESTJ, okay? Ask this down in the nitty-gritty details. Give me the exact plan. J is I want actions right now. Um, and um, E is extroverted, Blah, all over the place, okay? My poor husband. Okay, comes home from work. How does he come home from work? <laughs> okay, so, and he has a very unself-aware boss, okay? So, but by us understanding that, it can help us equip even my husband how to respond to his boss, right? Yeah. What did you say I have to do for That me? Yeah. I, oh, I, I'm an ENTJ. 
Okay, but, but his boss is an ESTJ. So he and I fell in love over the N, okay? I always say we fell in love over the N, and the P and the J are what drive us crazy. So it's a good balance, you know? Um, <laughs> but when you can understand why you're different, why you, how you approach the world differently, and how some of your staff or your team members approach the world differently, what not only it helps bring is understanding, but it also helps you figure out what are the best seats on the bus for different people. Because often we're asking someone to do something that they're not skilled at. Do not ask my husband to come up with a task list for today. Ask him what we should be doing to keep our country safe for the next 20 years. And he'll give you, you just have to tell him when to stop talking because he'll you know, talk for hours and hours. So it's like you have to be able to learn who on your team is good at what and how to equip them effectively in those areas. And then instead of viewing them as irresponsible or not doing something right or not following through, you see them as what they're gifted by God to do. And as leaders, we have a responsibility to empower them in those things. Okay, so healthy teams, what do they have? Number one, I believe healthy teams have healthy, self-aware leaders. Imperfect and honest, <laughs> healthy, self-aware leaders. Yeah. <laughs> yep. 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 context I use strengths finder um, because I think strengths finder echoes spiritual gifts so effectively so that's the one that I use most frequently in ministry context yep strengths finder and it also the other thing I love about strengths finder is that the book um, oh my goodness there's the I'm blanking on the title of it but there's the complimentary book for leaders that explains how to manage each type of strength so literally I just keep that on my shelf, and when one of my staff is driving me crazy, or is becoming disengaged, or is becoming frustrated, I pull it off the shelf and reread the sections on their strengths, and usually in there I catch, that's why they're disengaging. Oh, that's what I'm not doing as a leader to, you know, pull them in or whatever. So that's what I also love about StrengthsFinder, is there's, you know, it's a really quick reference guide, so. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, either way, I mean, I've used it as in recruit or, or in hiring. Like, if you have two really close candidates that you're not sure which is the best fit, I, I've also hired based on it. So, like at one point, we, you know, I've I've done the Strengths Finder Educator Seminar and everything. So, like, there's different categories within Strengths Finder. If you're aware of that, we were hugely lacking on the relational category. We had people that were in the executing and the strategic thinking one, very strong, and we had horrible customer service and connection in our department. So we had a position opening and I said, we're hiring someone in the relational category. Even if they're not the perfect fit for this position, we'll tweak the job description. But, and then we hired someone based on that. And literally, here was the other beautiful thing about it. So literally, I mean, all of a sudden our whole wing of our, you know, where we, our staff all was, was full of people stopping by and laughing and shouting and music coming out of her office. And the other staff were like, why is she not working, blah, blah, blah. I said, we hired her for her woo, okay, which is one of her strengths. And this 
is what was not happening. And this is what's now happening. So you all be quiet, okay? <laughs> She's doing her job. So it helps you even navigate conflict when you can explain why people are doing things in different ways and you have that terminology, you know? Because I was able to use woo. She's wooing. Let her woo, you know? So, yeah, great. Any other questions on that? Okay. Um, there has to be a continual focus on team building and trust. So again, I mean, this is like any relationship, whether it's friendship or marriage or whatever, a team, it's something that has to be maintained. You know, you don't just buy a car and then it runs perfectly forever. And teams have to be maintained. So make sure that you're building into your team culture, whether it's, you know, 10 minutes at the beginning of a team meeting. Or what I would do with my staff is three times a year, we would actually go on an offsite for half a day We'd share in more depth what was going on in our personal lives, what was going on in our professional lives, and then we'd evaluate goals. You know, do some of that commitment, making sure that we're committing to results. Okay, so we just built that in, and that helped when we knew three times a year we were going to do that. It helped us kind of mitigate at that point anything that had come up. Um, so make sure you're building those things into your thing. Engage in healthy conflict, okay? And if you feel uncomfortable with conflict, then go buy a book on it or talk to someone who's great at it and get some strategies for how to... Um, do conflict well. Have clear goals and accountability. And then this is the big one, understand, appreciate, and empower each individual, which is what we're talking about with these um, assessments, okay? So, um, questions, comments, thoughts? Um, ooh, that's a good question. I mean, really, I would start with, if you haven't read Five Dysfunctions of a Team and getting the field guide, I would start there because he actually gives you some strategies for basically the way that Patrick Lencioni lays it out is these are four steps to team building, you know, in a way. And so he actually walks you through things to do with your team to help facilitate healthy conflict. Um, and he recommends setting into place um, like guidelines. So having everybody write out how they like to have conflict because everybody's different. You bring those things all together and you decide as a department or as a team, here's how we're going to handle conflict. So you integrate different people's input. Because some people just want to have a hash it out in a big team meeting, let's punch each other and get it all out. And other people really want to be confronted one-on-one. -on -one. So you kind of find a compromise. Yeah, good. Yeah, go ahead. So we, at Kids Church, we have like a, we call it stall, which is food and food. Okay. Very cool, okay. Okay. And all of Very cool. Heroes, and we okay. do have some conflicts that happen. Yes. So like, how would we go about this for like, a kid's church? Yeah. I mean, in some ways, kids are much easier <laughs> because they don't have all of the inhibitions that we've learned. Um, and so, I mean, it's a great way of mentoring. So I would just say embracing it, talking about what's happening, you know, and using it as a mentoring situation. So give me an example of a conflict that might come up. Yep. And yep. And so what happens at school sometimes follow and come to yep. church yep. and then they talk to each other, but then they don't want to talk to each other. <laughs> so yes, okay. And yep. then they are yep. constantly at each other and then yep. they start bringing up what happened in school and then their friend said this, but then my friend said this, and then they're like, well, your friends don't talk about me, and it just kind of turns into this yes. thing that she said. And yep. It yeah. 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 
Yes, ooh, fun. <laughs> um, okay, I mean, we, we can talk afterwards because I have some ideas. So let's talk, just grab me afterwards and let's talk a little bit about that. But I mean, essentially with kids, it's great because you just want to get all that out on the table. I mean, in any conflict resolution, you want to get everything out on the table, right? As much as possible. Yet, and sometimes you have to say, there's some things you're not going to have control over because it's happening in other contexts. So at some points, you're going to have to just say, that's something that happened at school. We can't deal with it here. You know, but the relationship piece of it, you can confront, not necessarily what's happening. Okay. Other thoughts, questions? Yeah. Um, no yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. That is, they're there. Yep. They don't realize it yet, yep. but they're already there. Oh, yeah. Um, if you just expound on that yep. and how we might be able to steer clear of some of the problems. Yep. Um, make, I'm not sure I completely understand your question, so I'll start talking and then you can clarify if you want. But. It's just kind of fascinating. You mentioned the fact that they don't have to pay for it. Yep, yep, right. And, and I think that that's the point that a lot of people miss when they talk about future casting. Yes, yes. Yep, so I'm actually working on my next book um, about how millennials are going to lead differently, lead the church differently than other generations, because right now we're really succession planning in the next 10 years is going to be pretty critical. Um, one of the things I feel like the role of teams and intergenerational teams is to help make sure that we're transferring the skills and perspectives that are going to be needed that millennials are lacking to the next generation. So what I just kind of shared with her about children's church so much of team leadership needs to be modeling and explaining things, okay? So making sure that we're explaining why we're doing things and then explaining what we're modeling as well. So conflict resolution, problem solving, decision making, critical thinking, which are all things that are showing millennials don't have quite as much of as older generations, making sure that we're doing what we can to instill those things into, the, to, into millennials. Um, I do think that the world is getting much messier our country is getting much messier. That's partially because of modern, postmodernism and some of the things that are coming in, which I'll talk about in the final workshop that I'm doing today. But um, as a result, millennials are gonna live in a much more, lead in a much more chaotic world, in a world in which we need to be much more adaptable and flexible. And so in some ways, some of their chaotic thinking is very well suited, okay? They tend to be much, I say chaotic in a good way, okay? Because they can bounce around and do different things, which they drive us crazy because we want to have a 10-year strategic plan. They're not going to have a 10-year strategic plan because tomorrow there could be a recession or a terrorist attack or who knows what and the whole world could change, you know? So um, there are some things that we need to instill in them, but then I also realize that there's some things they're not going to need that we've needed. They don't need to know how to put together a 10-year strategic plan. They don't need to know necessarily how to do a capital campaign because we're probably not going to be building a lot of mega churches in the next 20 years, you know? So there's some of these skills. So as leaders, I think it's really important that we're discerning what are the skills that they're going to need to be effective and what are skills that have served a purpose for a season but are not going to be needed in the new season, you know? And then I really just encourage that modeling and mentoring in your team leadership. So, and letting them ask questions and having honest conversations about why we do ministry the way we do, you know? So, yeah.